Now turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Now you will be receiving a handout, so let me just explain where I want to go with this message. My burden today is to present the gospel to you in the book of Romans uh, and give you a form of equipping, give you a tool that you can use not only in understanding the book of Romans itself, but in evangelizing to others as you come across the path of people who need to hear the gospel. So I'm going to approach this very systematically, and what we're going to do is just this. We're going to look from Romans chapter 10 at the mandate of gospel preaching, why the message of the cross has centrality in the Christian's life, in the assembly, or wherever it might be. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take that mandate from Romans chapter 10, and we're going to examine what the gospel message actually is. And so on the handout, you will find a diagram uh, that I modified from something you may have seen uh, on the internet or in a tract, and it is simply showing where man is, where God is, and a cross in the middle. But what I've done is I have attached certain scripture references to that diagram, expanded it a little bit, and shown you that you can very easily illustrate the gospel uh, from the book of Romans if you are speaking to an individual, whether it be over coffee uh, or whatnot. So even if you are not thinking of anybody in particular that you can witness to at this point, uh, this will be a tool to systematize the gospel in your mind and to understand what it is and where it fits in this most important book of Romans. So Romans chapter 10, and before we start reading, you will also notice that the outline not only has a handwritten diagram, but on the other side, there is what you see, the structure of Romans as a whole. So before we read Romans chapter 10, I want to prove to you that this is the centerpiece of the book of Romans. If you want to understand something from Romans, remember this, Christ must be Preached. And so let me prove that very, very briefly to you. So the, Roman, the book of Romans as a whole is centered around this idea of justification by faith. It begins in chapter 1 with that statement, the just shall live by faith. You're going to find that phrase in three books of the Bible, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. In Romans, we see an emphasis on what it means to be just, what it means to be righteous before God. In the book of Galatians, you see more of an emphasis on the phrase, shall live, because it is showing that we are not only justified by the grace of Christ, but we live and we continue on by the grace of Christ, Christian liberty. Then in the book of Hebrews, we see what faith means, as the author draws his readers to have a, a view towards what is invisible, a high priest in heaven, and a coming kingdom that he promises for those who live by faith. So the book of Romans presents to us how God justifies a man. You will find in the book of Romans that it has a few main divisions. You begin with the prologue you will see here in the structure of Romans where Paul emphasizes something of his view of Christ and his personal desires. Then we come to the doctrine part of Romans from chapters 1 through 8, and Paul is there describing the gospel of the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So there you'll see that we're dealing with justification by faith for both Jews and Gentiles, and then we see how that applies in the Christian life. You come to the second section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, and you will find that 
we could call these dispensational dealings, where God is dealing with the nation of Israel as a whole. Chapter 9 is Israel in the past. Chapter 10 is Israel in the present. Chapter 11 is Israel in the future. And so I've just kind of outlined that for you. Then in chapters 12 through 15, we have the Christian's duty. And then at the end, he has his personal desires and his idea of who Christ is again. Now, I'm not going to take time to explain the entire diagram, but I just want you to notice this. This is a structure, a V pattern, you will notice, called a chiasm. And what a chiasm does is it follows a certain number of themes up to a certain point until it climaxes, and then it follows those themes again in reverse. So you can see how I've outlined those parallel themes throughout. So we begin and end with Christ. He continues, and the second last thing is his personal desires. We see the idea of conscience, judgment, and justification in chapters 1 through 5, then in 12 through or in 14 through 15, we see those same things repeated, just in a more practical way. So I'll leave that for your own personal study. You will also see that I included a couple, particularly six climaxes of the book of Romans that naturally divide it up. So that's more of an academic resource for you, uh, just to understand the book of Romans. What I want to get from this is simply this. As you come through this chiasm, or you can call it a mountain peak, we're ascending up the mountain to a specific point. And I want you to notice, I've underlined and italicized it in the outline, what the point is that climaxes the book of Romans. We have come from seeing that a man is justified by faith, and we are just about to enter into that realm of practical Christian living. And so we come to chapter 10, and we see full, free, and far-reaching salvation for all. That's a very, very practical application of what Paul has been leading up to in describing the gospel to us. So the Romans chapter 10, we cannot miss it because it describes to us the centrality of the gospel. So begin with me in verse number 1 then. We are going to cover a lot of material, so I will reference certain verses for you. Chapter 10 and verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, notice this phrase repeated, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And so he continues by saying, now Israel has failed to attain to the righteousness that they thought they were looking for. And so he says, Christ is actually the end of what they're looking for. Christ is the goal. So he's asking himself currently, in light of the fact that Israel has rejected Christ, how does somebody in the nation of Israel or in the Gentile world come to a correct understanding of Christ. So he continues in verse number 5. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, The man which doeth these things shall live by them. But then it says, The righteousness which is of faith speaks in this way. Do not say into your heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead again. 
What does it say? And this is still the quotation. The word is nigh unto you. This was originally applied to the law in Deuteronomy 30, but now it's applied to Christ, the gospel. The word is nigh to you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whosoever believes on him will not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is important what follows. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Paul is following a very specific line of reasoning here. And he's showing that he has a burden for Israel because they do not have Christ. But then he's going to present how Christ comes to any sinner wherever they are, whether you be Jew or Gentile. And so he says, let's go back to the law. Let's see what the law said about itself. And so it says, do not say who will ascend into heaven. That is, you're not supposed to be seeking God for a physical manifestation. You don't have to go searching for what God requires of you. So, so Paul is going to apply that to the gospel, and he says, I'm going to apply this to Christ, and it says, the word is nigh unto you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word or the message of faith which we preach. So he is saying, the Jew seeks to know God by a system of rules that he can follow. But the Christian comes along and he says, I am going to bring Christ right before you, not in the form of a person, not in the form of a system, but in the form of a message. In the form of a message, that will be very important. So the fact that it is only Christ means that this message is singular. It can be offered to everybody equally. The fact that it is a message means that it cannot be contained. It can be given to the whole world. And the fact that it is a message means it must be preached. It must be preached. So Israel heard the message, and he concludes in verses 18 to 21, yet because of their obstinance, they did not respond to God. I want to notice a couple keys from Romans chapter 10 before we get into the real meat of my topic. It begins with a burden, and it begins with a prayer. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Gospel work starts when God deals with a person's heart, and when that person is willing to respond by praying in a real, living way that God would save souls. And so the challenge to us today, it starts in the heart. God is doing plenty of work in the Windsor Assembly for our hearts to be touched by what God is doing. The question is, are we praying? So I just leave that with you as a challenge. 
But then we come to this idea that because Christ comes in a message, Christ goes wherever the message goes. And basically what I want to prove from this before we get into Romans chapter 1 is this. We need to have clear, explicit preaching of Jesus Christ for people to be saved. In this age, and I'm going to make a bold statement that some would disagree with, but I'm going to make it. In this age, there is no way to be saved apart from explicit response in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So it makes our responsibility very solemn that no one can be saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Romans 10. So that has practical implications for our own understanding of the gospel and how we present it to others. Because it means we are then responsible to present to the sinner a clear, systematic presentation of the gospel. We do appreciate personal testimony, and we would all agree with that, I think. But personal testimony is not enough to win a soul. Because everybody has experiences that they could reference for us in any religion. What we need, in addition to what we have experienced, is the ability to show a sinner objectively from Scripture what the gospel means and how it applies to him. So what I want to do then is give you a tool so that if you haven't had a a time to systematize the gospel or to come to grips with how to present the gospel in your mind, that you can just simply open up the book of Romans starting at chapter 1 and go through all the way to chapter 5 and present the gospel to anybody you're meeting and, and have a clear idea of the sinner's ruin, God's remedy, and man's responsibility. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1. We are going to do a very bird's eye view survey here. So keeping in mind this fact that it is the Christian's duty to be able to preach a message. A message is cognitive. A message is verbal. Those are important factors. So Romans chapter 1 and verse number 1. Paul, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And then in verse number two, we see something of the gospel of God, that it is concerning his son, who is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by resurrection of dead persons, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul presents himself at the beginning of this book, and we've seen that the book of Romans is all about the gospel, what the gospel is and how it applies to my life, and specifically to the nation of Israel as well. And so Paul begins this massive treatise, which, by the way, he actually spoke this to somebody to transcribe, because at the end of Romans it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you as well, which means Paul had this all sitting in his mind. I think that's, that really blows my mind. That's really cool. Paul had this all in his mind, all the structure of Romans, the climaxes, the doxologies. He had that all sitting in his mind, and he spoke it to a man to write down. I think that's pretty amazing. 
So he begins by declaring himself at the beginning of this book as a slave of Jesus Christ. As if to say that this person has won my will, he has won my affections, he has won my heart. And everything I am and do from now on is subjected to the will of this person called Jesus Christ. And so he, in these first seven verses, brings us to an idea of who Jesus Christ is. In his manhood, he descended from David, meaning he fulfills all of Israel's hopes. He is one that is royal, and he is one that has the right to the throne of Israel. But then he zooms out even further and he says, but I want to bring you to the Son of God. Not only to Jesus Christ who descended from David, I want to bring you to the Son of God who was declared to be the eternal Son of God because of God's power over death. God is marked by two primary attributes. He has intrinsic attributes, which mean they make up who God is in himself, and his primary intrinsic attribute is the attribute of self-existence, of immortality. God is sufficient in and of himself. He exists by himself. The second attribute is moral, and that is the fact that God is holy. So we have God's immortality and God's holiness. And here, in verse number four, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to two things, the spirit of holiness and resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, set apart by these two attributes, 100% holy, and he has power over death. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ is the perfect man, and yet he is truly God. So Paul begins with a very high view of Christ, and I just learned from that, that if we do not start with a high view of Christ, we will advance nowhere in the gospel. Your personal response to Christ is necessary before you even think about having a role so solemn as leading someone in the word of God and preaching the gospel to them. So then he continues from verses 8 to 17, and he describes his gospel work among assemblies. And basically, I just want to say this. Don't invest in the gospel unless you're ready for full commitment. Because Paul describes some very, very laborious things that he does here. And he describes how his heart is for the assembly. And he is laboring and striving. He is praying that he can meet all the needs of God's people across the Roman Empire. He probably, if he didn't die by being beheaded, he probably would have died early just because of how much he worked himself. But I just learned from that that if the gospel truly grips a person and compels a person, and this is our duty in preaching the gospel to others, we need to be ready to commit in the context of a local assembly where a permanent testimony is established. So that's what I see in verses in, in Paul's prologue here. And then he reaches a climax in verse number 16. And here we're going to look at how the righteousness of God is beginning to be revealed. So here we get into the real meat of the topic. So what I'm going to do is I'm, as I'm about to draw this illustration, let's say if you, if you care to use that, what I'm going to do for myself if I'm talking to a person is I'm going to ask the question to them, what could make 
a person who once hated Christ turn into a person who was absolutely sold out to the gospel and went to his death for the gospel? What changes a person like that? So I'm going to draw them along and bring them to verse number 16 to this climactic statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there Paul is saying, I am not ashamed because I have proven the power of this message. So what he's doing is he is basically saying, this has changed my life. It's proven itself in me, and so I'm going to explain to you what that gospel is. So as I confront a sinner, a very good way to start a conversation is just ask, how did this religious zealot who hated Christ, who hated Christians, turn into a man who in verses 1 to 7 loves Christ, and in verses 8 to 17 loves Christians? What kind of power could do that? That's the gospel. And so that will lead into a conversation of how powerful is this gospel message. So we have to start on the right basis, though. So that's where verse 17 comes in. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the gospel is primarily this idea that God is revealing his righteousness. Remember that. God is revealing his righteousness. In Romans chapter 10, we found out that Israel's problem is that they were seeking a righteousness of their own. It wasn't God righteousness. It was righteousness of their own. And so that's where they fell. They did not achieve the righteousness of God. In fact, they were ignorant of it. So now Paul is saying the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. It has a certain basis because it's from faith to faith, out of faith into faith. We could understand it this way. The gospel is revealed on the principle of faith. In other words, people don't understand it unless they approach it by faith. The gospel is an entirely faith-based message. So if it's a faith-based message, it is then not only from faith, but to faith, to people who are believers. That's how God reveals the gospel to people. So it is a faith-based message. So here we have righteousness established, and here we have faith established at the beginning. And he says, and he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, the just shall live by faith. Okay, so now we have the gospel. It's a very high standard. And it's the righteousness of God, and it's revealed by faith. How is Paul going to develop that? Okay, so we have the righteousness of God revealed here. So now we're going to come to the section where Paul is going to systematically condemn every class of human being on the face of the earth. So in verses, let's say, or chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, Paul is going to declare the entire world guilty. He's going to bring three classes of people into a courtroom, and he's going to say, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, therefore the entire world is guilty. So let's follow his train of thought. Beginning in verse number 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the first class of people that Paul is dealing with, we could call them, uh, maybe we could call them people who are secular, people who suppress the truth, people who deny the existence and the reality of God. And these people have a very specific form of revelation. And if you look on your handout, I have kind of outlined these for you in the left. They are revealed who God is by creation, 
but they reject how God is revealed in creation, therefore they are condemned. So Paul is going to develop this. These are people who suppress the truth that they see in creation. So in verse number 20, we come to this idea that the invisible things of God are clearly seen, and yet man rejects that. Notice, notice the order here, and I'm going to emphasize this. The first phase of man's decline is going to start here, when man becomes increasingly atheistic or simply immoral in his character. But notice, man initiated that. Man initiated that. They understood the things of God, but they did not glorify God, and their foolish heart was passively darkened. We don't read anything up to this point of how God has given them over or how God has darkened their hearts. The capacity for darkness was already in their hearts, and they simply gave themselves over to it when they rejected God. So man established himself in the rejection of God, and that was phase number one, where man turns himself over to idolatry. So now God is going to get involved, and he's going to show how low secular society can go. And so in verses 24 to 25, we are met with the second phase of the decline of these people. So God gave them up. God gave them over to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. And so it culminates in that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So notice the systematic decline. They started as idolaters. They rejected God. Just to make this relevant, we could see that as being Native America, a very idolatrous culture, very low view of God. But now we're coming to phase chapter, phase number two, where God is going to give them over to what they always wanted, and that is creature worship, and it's ultimately self-worship. So that comes in very clearly in the verses we just read. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That reminds me of the Enlightenment it reminds me of rationalism. It reminds me of people who subscribe to evolution. And they say that man in himself has the capacity to increase and expand. So they've forgotten God, they've become idolaters, but now they're going to give themselves over to creature worship. So we can see the decline of society starting in the Enlightenment and with rationalism and with Charles Darwin and subsequent implementation of evolution into the textbooks in the 1960s. Okay, so we continue. What does God do after man gives himself over to this kind of rationalism where the truth of God is rejected? This brings us into phase number three of the decline of society. And in verses 26 to 27, it says, For this cause God gave them up, unto vile affections, for even their women did exchange the natural use for that which is against nature, and then the men followed. Phase number three. Very, very important to understand in society. First, an idolatry revolution. Then a rational revolution. Now, after the 1960s, it's a, se a sexual revolution. And so we have, first of all, the women exchanging their own function as women for unnatural affections, women having relationships with women. That's what Paul is describing here. And it's the women who did that first, and that's important to understand. Because in Genesis chapter 3, God predicts this problem by saying, her desire shall be unto you. 
And so it is always that position of the woman to be grasping a place that is not her own. Let me just say something very quickly before we move on. Homosexuality is a form of self-worship because by being with somebody who you are exactly like, you are in turn worshiping yourself. You cannot commit to a partner who is unlike you. You need somebody exactly like yourself. And so, first of all, the women are self-worshippers because they have relationships with women. And because the women left their natural role, the men had nothing else to do, essentially. And they didn't know what to do with themselves, as husbands can attest when their wives are not home. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, when the women left their natural function, um, then the men followed. And they did the same thing, essentially. And so the decline of women, the decline of men, and they are burning in their lust one towards another. That is where we have found ourselves in the early 2000s. Phase number four is in verse number 28. This is where we are now. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this is the third and final giving over by God, he gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. When you think it couldn't get any worse, we have yet to experience what the worst part of this is. Idolatry, rationalism, sexual revolution, we have now lost our capacity to think. And where man started by worshiping animals, man has now become an animal. And he has given himself to be filled with anything that satisfies his lust here and now. So that's where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, and we find explicitly stated in verse number 32, they that commit such things are worthy of death. Okay, so Paul's painting a very ugly picture here, and he's saying these people are condemned. They are without excuse. So he's bringing them into a courtroom, and he's saying, defend yourself. And then he concludes by saying, you have no defense. So that's party number one. So a person might come along. He's not quite a Jew, but he has a inflated idea of himself and he comes along and he says what this society is doing is wrong let's say he's a political conservative this is extremely relevant because he is conservative by class by party he can now look at what the the liberals are doing and he can condemn it okay interesting so paul says therefore you are inexcusable O man whoever you are that judges For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. Huh. Because you're doing the exact same things. And essentially what Paul is doing is this, is he's presenting a picture not of somebody who is entirely given over to immorality, but he is presenting a picture of someone who is a hypocrite. He claims to be good in himself, but really in his heart the evil dwells fully. And so he reminds them that they have rejected the kindness of God that was meant to lead them to repentance, and they have hard hearts. Class number two, the hypocrite, the self-righteous, condemned, condemned. 
Okay. Verse number 11 says, there is no respect of persons with God. So that makes sense that whether you are outwardly immoral or inwardly immoral, God judges the secrets of the heart, and that is the key. So here we're seeing that man is condemned, but what about the Jew? So these immoral people in chapter 1, they had creation that they rejected. In chapter 2, you have these people who rejected their internal conscience. Uh, God is speaking to them through their conscience, but they reject that. But how about these people who have the commandments of God? Surely these people have a chance at being righteous before God. The Jews, they are a teacher of the ignorant. They are a guide to the blind. And that's what he is telling us in verse 17 to the end of chapter 3, that, that you are a Jew and you rest in the law and you make your boast of God. You know his will. And yet, he basically says, listen, in verse 24, in verse 23 actually, he says, you that make your boast of the law, through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Wow. Even these Jews who had the commandments of God and who are teachers of the ignorant, they were the very reason that secular society began to hate God and turn away from him. Because rejected truth is always more dangerous than ignorance. And so the Jews here became a stumbling block to the world around them. And because these people looked and said, you are acting inconsistently with the commandments of God. So, essentially, uh, we don't want anything to do with your God. Hmm. So, the immoral secularist, condemned. The hypocrite, condemned. The Jew, condemned. Chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul is going to bring this great statement to fruition where he says, in verse number 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse number 19, for we know that whatever the law says, it says to them who are under the law for this reason, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So Paul has brought before us three people groups. And he has successfully condemned them all in the court of God. And he ends by saying, there is none righteous, no, not one. God's righteousness has been revealed. But it has been revealed in wrath against man's unrighteousness. But we want the righteousness of God to be a good thing for us. So that's where chapter 3 and verse number 21 comes in. But the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is manifested. And here he is going to set forth, in some of the most eloquent, deep, theologically significant terms, of what the cross of Christ means for the sinner. Man has no hope of earning God's favor. There is none righteous. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But, even though all have sinned, we can be justified as a gift by his grace. I'm going to leave this deep portion until tonight. And we will see how the gospel is developed there as being the pinnacle of this section of how God justifies a man. Because Christ has satisfied the claims of the wrath of God. We're going to look at that later in the gospel this evening. 
So he ends in verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. So we have seen that man is condemned. Christ has provided the ultimate provision, and now man must approach God by faith. Remember, the just shall live by faith. So in chapter 4, Paul is going to use Abraham as an example of what it means to be justified by faith. So we have seen man's ruin, and you can take your friend through the ruin of man in every aspect of society. You can take man to the cross of Jesus Christ, and then you have to face them with this fact. You must respond to the provision of God in Jesus Christ. How are you going to do that? So you take them to the first part of chapter 4. And you say, it can't be of works. It can't be of works because it says in verse 2, if Abraham were justified by works, he has something to boast in. And God just said in verse number 27 that boasting is excluded. doesn't work that way. So what Paul does in chapter 4 is he's using Abraham to show that God's righteousness is not earned. Rather, it is credited to the sinner's account by grace. And so faith is the means of receiving that. So in verses 1 through 8, Paul is going to prove this thesis that apart from works, God justifies a man. God justifies a man apart from works. But then we're not only going to come to a moral predicament that Paul solves there, we're going to come to an ethnic predicament. Because the Gentile will say, well, wasn't Abraham circumcised? Uh, Doesn't that mean we're not able to be saved by the same faith that Abraham was saved by? But Paul says, no, circumcision is no barrier either. It's not by works, it's not by circumcision. It's not by your works, your efforts, or your ethnicity. It's by faith. Because he proves Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. So that's the way it works now. So it says in verse number 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace So let me just explain how this applies today. Paul says, Abraham believed an impossible promise by God, and therefore he was justified. God promised him, even though Sarah's womb was dead, that Abraham would have a son. So Abraham, against all logic, believed God because God said it. So Abraham believed something that was impossible to happen. So, how does that apply to our faith? What impossible thing are we called to believe in order to be justified by God? Verse number 25. Verse number 24. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, his death put away the sin question, And was raised again for our justification so that the resurrection provides an impossible act that only God can do that demands faith to be believed. He was raised again with a view towards our justification because only by faith can we have the righteousness of God. So you're going to look at your friend and you say, you can only receive the gift of God by faith. Simply trusting the promise of God as revealed in the cross. And then, even though we don't have time, I leave it for your personal devotion. Chapter number 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul just climaxes. He can't hold himself back. And he culminates by saying this in verse number 11. After he proves that our position, our condition, our future is settled with God, he says, not only so, but we also joy in God 
We boast in God, we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom now we have received the reconciliation. God has provided a means whereby he can bring sinful man who is condemned to himself because of the cross of Jesus Christ, and a man appropriates that by faith. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that is the message we are responsible to preach. And chapter 5 just shows us that this is the most worthwhile message in the whole world. And it's the only way to live. So I trust that this may have added clarity. If I didn't come across clearly, please ask me afterwards what I meant. Um, But let's remember, it's the message of the cross that is necessary for people to be saved. And we need to be responsible to explain that the way that God has laid it out for us. So let's just take a moment to pray.